Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. There we find these words. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning amongst themselves, saying, well, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why do you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As we enter in today's text, we are picking up on the subject of authority, a subject that that creates all sorts of tension in all of our minds for every single one of us, is born into this world to live under the authority of someone, and all of us face that difficult possession or position, living under the authority of people throughout our entire lives. Regardless of our age, it is something we have to deal with, and it's something we do not enjoy. We understand the struggle from a very early age as children in relationship to our parents, I think all of us know it does not take long before a child, perhaps by the age of two, maybe even younger, truly believes that they know what is best for them. They know better than their parents what they should eat. They know better than their parents when they should sleep, where they should go. They believe, it seems, that, that they have a better understanding of these mysterious figures of authority that God has placed in their lives. That struggle is carried on over to school when we complain about teachers as children. We criticize their methods. We believe that they are somehow maybe incompetent, unable to teach us something that we genuinely need to know in life. And a similar critique, a similar struggle is found throughout the entirety of our existence. Whether it's in college with professors or it's in job with a boss that we dislike or in any given interpersonal relationship, we are quick to, to try to excuse the supposed authority another person has over us. And we are just as quick to, to declare, at least in our heart, in our minds, that we ultimately have the final say in everything we do. We naturally view ourselves as competent and legitimate authority figures. And as such, anytime someone attempts to offer us advice that we disagree with, anytime someone tells us to do something we do not want to do, we naturally lash back. We, we naturally dislike their position. And we assume that we do not need anyone else to speak into our lives. We simply are enough authority to exist. It is in light of that that we can understand why someone like Jesus is so incredibly offensive. Both to the religious leaders of his day and ultimately to every single person who's ever lived. For Jesus, as we see in this text again, stands as this all-invasive authority figure. Who speaks not simply into the life of of a school student, not simply into the life of a child, but into the life of, of religious leaders, of political leaders, of, of everyday lay people in the streets. Jesus Christ stands as this figure who universally says, the kingdom of God is here, I'm the king, you must submit. Jesus is this grand figure of authority who, as we will see yet again, threatens all others' authority. 
He is this authority figure who exposes all of us for what we really are. And ultimately, he is the authority figure that stands superior to everyone else. Ultimately, this reality will either be terrifying to us or the greatest sense of comfort. It all depends on how we respond. As we examine the text today, however, we will look at the response particularly of the religious leaders who, of course, struggled greatly. But as we do, it's important, of course, to understand we are not just observing the wickedness of religious leaders. We're observing the sin of all of us. We're observing in in this process, in this event, the the struggle all of us face. And so as we examine the text today, let us use it as a means to to really reflect on our own hearts, reflect on, on how we personally respond daily to these grand claims of authority of Jesus. Before we get into the threat that Jesus poses to these figures, though, let us begin our time in a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into Mark 11, 27 through 33. Let me go and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, as always, for the opportunity you've given us today. What an opportunity it is to gather together as a body of Christ, as the body of Christ, to sing songs of praise to you, to see beloved brothers and sisters of the same faith. What a great opportunity it is to hear your word presented to us, God, and what an incredible opportunity it is to hear the words of your son, Jesus Christ, here in Mark 11. God, as we come together this morning, as always, we pray that you might remove all distractions from us, God. As we consider these words of Christ and the example of the religious leaders, uh, might we not be so, so prideful as to assume that we have somehow escaped the sin or avoided the sin that they commit? But might we be quick to acknowledge and confess our pride before you? For the authority of Christ is something that, that is a struggle for all of us, at least initially, God. But ultimately, our prayer this morning is that we might all respond appropriately. We might all respond to that perfect authority of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, might we all be brought into the kingdom, God by placing our faith entirely in him. For those in here who do not yet know you, God, I pray for their salvation this morning. I pray that you break them of their sin, Lord. I pray they might, for the first time, see the authority of Christ in the right manner. Might they tremble before him, understanding that they too cannot escape his rule. We love you, God. We love you, Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice you've given for us, God, through which we are saved. Might this time be glorifying to you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. As we begin our time this morning, we begin with this basic but important reminder of the fact that the authority of Jesus Christ ultimately threatens all other authority figures. We see this just as the text begins in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. Picking it up there, if you will, follow along. Let's read. Again, we read that they, that's Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Now as the story picks up, it's important again to remember where we are in the ministry of Christ. For things really are are picking up at this juncture. It would have only been about possibly two days before this event in Mark eleven twenty seven that Jesus would have entered into Jerusalem in that, that great triumphal entry, that moment in which Jesus is hailed as the Messiah, that moment in which Jesus clearly acts in a way, he behaves in a way that, that declares his role as king, that declares his role as the long-awaited Messiah. After coming into Jerusalem then, perhaps just a day before Mark eleven twenty seven. 
We remember that, that Jesus came into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers. He does that again, which is very dramatic, very authoritative. And aside from these authoritative actions, Jesus Christ is, is speaking as a prophet of the Old Testament would speak. He's speaking words of, of wrath, words of judgment against Israel, and namely, words of wrath and judgment against the leaders of Israel. It is in light of those words, in light of those activities, that we can understand why these figures who approach Jesus come with, with such aggression, come with great concern. For again, Mark tells us in verse 27 that it's not just, just anyone that approaches him. These are, this is a group of people comprised of chief priests, scribes, and elders. These figures are the leaders that Jesus Christ is so openly condemning. These figures are representative of the larger body known as the Sanhedrin, a group familiar to many of you, a group that will become more important as the story progresses. But as the Sanhedrin, these figures really were the final say in Jerusalem. These were the great religious leaders of Israel. These were the people that kept things together in the temple where Jesus Christ was proclaiming these words of judgment. These were the figures who had the highest level of authority for your everyday Jewish person. They were kind of a big deal. And they, therefore, are understandably perturbed when they see and when they hear of, of what Jesus Christ is doing in their own backyard, in their own temple. For it's one thing for this Jesus figure to be out in the countryside, to be out in these no-name villages performing various miracles and, and teaching the way he does, that, that is offensive enough, but it's entirely different when Jesus has, has the gall to come into their temple to drive out their money changers, to drive out their businessmen, to question their authority, to question their own actions. They understand that Jesus isn't just speaking hypothetically about the desires of God. Jesus Christ is speaking very sharp and pointed words that are directed directly at their own hearts, directly at their own livelihoods. As such, these religious figures understand rightly that Jesus is a direct threat to their life, a direct threat to everything they knew and loved. And while these religious leaders are prideful in the response, while they are sinful, we understand that their frustration is by no means unique to their own experience. For ultimately, every single person feels this sting of Christ's invasive authority at a certain point in time. Every single person, regardless of, of your supposed level of authority, at a certain point you understand that Jesus is not just some distant, vague figure speaking of love. Jesus is that figure that comes on the scene declaring, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe in me. Jesus Christ then is, is never satisfied with some vague word of dependence, some vague word of trust. Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and, and demands total allegiance from absolutely everyone in every single area of their daily lives. You hear this language in, in passages that are perhaps some, somewhat famous for how blunt they sound. But just consider this passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. All things have been handed to me by my Father. 
No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. This idea that all things come through Christ, this, this reality that, that all must place their faith entirely in Jesus and no one else. You hear similar other suggestions in passages like Luke chapter 14 and 26 when Jesus says, unless you hate your father and hate your mother, you are unworthy to be my disciple. Again, Jesus speaks of, of total devotion. Total devotion and faith and, and discipleship to Jesus and nothing else. Jesus Christ's authority, his claims invade every area of our personal lives. And this is where his ruling, this is where his claim becomes so offensive for all of us. For again, it's easy to hear Jesus speak against the sins of, of those other people. It's easy to hear Jesus speak of just vague concepts like love and grace. But when Jesus starts speaking on, on concerns of your sexual purity, when Jesus tells you what kind of husband you have to be, what kind of wife you have to be, what kind of employee you have to be, when Jesus tells you what kind of child you have to be, when Jesus tells you everything that you have to be, suddenly it feels very personal. For suddenly you realize that, that as the king of all creation, he is not content with vague discipleship. He demands total devotion. For he is the king over everything. Uh, the famous theologian Abraham Kuyper many years ago said this regarding this, this all-invasive authority of Jesus. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. This reality is true not simply politically speaking, but it's true when it comes to your own hearts, when it comes to your own dreams, your greatest desires. It is true when it comes to absolutely every square inch of creation, including every square inch of you and I. Jesus, as an authority figure in his ministry, is so offensive because he threatens our autonomy. He threatens that which we hold close in our hearts. And so there's good reason for these religious leaders to be frustrated and to confront Jesus. And in fact, if, if anyone has a right to question Jesus here in Mark 11, it would seem to be these religious leaders. For again, this is their home turf. And so, as they are frustrated, they come up to Jesus and ask this very straightforward question. In verse 28, in which they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? In an attempt to, to try to cut Jesus off, in an attempt to try to end these, these very offensive comments that Jesus is making, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, take the same basic strategy they've taken many times before. Uh, they attempt to invalidate Jesus' rule with a simple question of his authority. In essence, who gave you this permit to be here, Jesus? Who's trained you in a way that allows you to speak with us on our level? Who's given you permission to do that which the law very clearly is, is resigned only for, for us who stand in positions of authority? Their desire here again is to delegitimize Christ in the eyes of the masses to suggest that they somehow stand above this Jesus figure. And if you've been with us through the study of Mark or read through the other Gospels, you understand that this strategy is by no means nothing new. It's, it's nothing new to the way they approach Jesus. For these religious leaders are regularly trying to prop themselves up on their own inheritance, prop themselves up on their ba own background, prop themselves up on, on their expertise on things of the law. 
This is why so oftentimes they, they ask Jesus these complex questions regarding how he interprets some Old Testament passage. And they do so to try to confuse him. They do so to try to show themselves to be the real final authority in these religious matters. Their strategy and their question then is, is by no means unique to this passage, but again we understand it's, it's not unique simply to these religious leaders. It's something everyone does when they feel frustrated, when they feel offended by Jesus Christ. We see his enemies do this, of course, but we've also seen how his disciples, in, excellent, in, in, in essence, do the same sort of thing anytime Jesus says something that they do not appreciate. Perhaps the most famous example of this comes just a few pages back, a few chapters back in Mark chapter 8. There in Mark chapter 8, if you remember, Jesus Christ has spoken a, a little bit on his future, specifically his impending crucifixion. In response to this word regarding his crucifixion, we have this, this famous discussion between Peter and Jesus in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. There we read, Jesus went out, sorry, there we read, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, saying, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, and he warned them not to tell anyone about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And he was, sta and he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. This is a fascinating discussion between Peter and Jesus, for again, it reveals this, this tendency we all have in our own hearts to quickly lash back out against Jesus, push back against Jesus, the moment he says something that doesn't fit with our own desires, that doesn't fit with our own plans. Peter, of course, in this passage initially is, is this great example of a, a faithful disciple who proclaims Jesus to be the Christ. Peter proclaims that he truly believes this. But the moment that Jesus begins teaching on the crucifixion, the moment Jesus perhaps challenges Peter's assumptions regarding the Messiah, regarding what his role would be, Peter pushes back and he in essence says, no, Jesus, you can't do that. I know I just said you're the Messiah, Jesus, but no, you, you can't actually do that. Peter is speaking as if he is the authority over Jesus, that, that he has the right to direct Jesus' actions, Jesus' uh, decisions regarding his future. Peter demonstrates, in essence, the same sort of heart tendencies that the Pharisees and the scribes demonstrate as well. It's this tendency to push back and reject the authority of Christ the moment it infringes upon our own desires, the moment it goes against our own hopes. In the case of the Pharisees, we see those hopes full, on full display as the text moves on. But again, as we consider our own hearts this morning, it's important to ask ourselves of where we do this in our own lives. Where do we tend to, to shrug off the authority of Jesus? Where do we tend to question Jesus' ability to speak into our lives, to direct us, to tell us, to command us? We all have these various areas, these various idols in our lives. It's just a matter of, of figuring out where they stand. We must do so because, again, we realize that regardless of what we are speaking of in life, regardless of, of where in our daily lives we're looking, 
that Jesus demands total allegiance, that Jesus demonstrates that he is the king over everything. And so again, in Mark chapter 11, we have these religious figures coming forward and and puffing themselves up, presenting themselves as the final say on matters of religion, final say on matters of the law. As they do so, they no doubt appear to the outsider to be men of great competence, men of great confidence, men of great knowledge. They would no doubt appear to any of us to be very intimidating figures, the type of people none of us would want to cross, want to disagree with. And yet as competent, as confident, as proud as they initially look, as we continue to move on to the text, we see that Jesus is able to expose them for what they truly are with the simplest and shortest of questions. As we move now to in our next point where Jesus exposes authority, picking it back up then, in verse 29 we have this incredible response. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. In response to this this question that the Pharisees, that the scribes believe will trap Jesus, Jesus responds with this brilliant challenge. The challenge in essence simply being, who was John the Baptist? From where did his his ministry come from? From from where did he get his own authority? And then we see that this question, this figure, immediately silences these religious figures. The question is, why? Why? We have to understand that John the Baptist was an incredibly controversial figure for these people. Many of us do not think of John the Baptist very frequently, for he's just mentioned kind of in passing at the beginning of the Gospels. But for your average Jewish person, for your average Israelite, John the Baptist was a big deal. His ministry is described in a variety of passages throughout the Gospels. But you can find it just back in the beginning of Mark, a passage we would have read many months ago. Back in Mark chapter 1, you see the summary of this baptism. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, we read that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camels here and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down to untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For most of us, I think John the Baptist appears as a pretty bizarre figure, doesn't he? Eating wild locusts and honey, dressing kind of oddly out there, living out in the wilderness. It doesn't really fit in our our context today, but in that context, it was very clear what John was doing. He was acting and speaking and dressing and eating like a prophet from the Old Testament. And as he spoke then, he spoke just like a prophet in the Old Testament did. He, He demanded repentance. He demanded that people come out and purify themselves for God, and he did so as a means of preparing the way for the Messiah that he said would be coming very soon. The people, as Mark 1 mentions, loved John the Baptist. They would go out to John the Baptist in droves. Even the famous historian Josephus wrote of John the Baptist in his work Antiquities. 
describing John the Baptist there, Josephus said that that John the Baptist was seen as a very good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue and righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. He wrote, many were moved greatly by hearing his words and would travel great distances to be baptized. The common person then loved John the Baptist. He was an incredibly popular figure who was clearly embraced as a prophet from God. Yet as popular as John the Baptist were, of course, or as John the Baptist was, of course, he was equally hated by anyone in authority, wasn't he? While he spoke great things regarding the the righteousness that God calls for, while he spoke in a very prophetic way, he also spoke directly against those who held positions of authority. Namely, King Herod, we see, executed John for these sorts of teachings. But even for these religious leaders, in Matthew chapter 3, we read that John the Baptist calls them out for their sin. He says, who warned you of the judgment that's to come? What are you doing here? John the Baptist called out these leaders in a similar way that Jesus calls them out frequently in the Gospels. Even more controversial, of course, wasn't just they called them out for their sin. It's the fact that John the Baptist was proclaiming Jesus. He was proclaiming support for this Messiah of whom he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The religious leaders then understood that they were stuck. For, as the text demonstrates, if, if they claim that John the Baptist is from God, well, then Jesus could very easily say, well, why don't you follow him? Um, he clearly pointed to me, so you should follow him just as he spoke. Even worse, if they say he's from man, the masses will turn against them. For they love John the Baptist. And so either way, these, these Pharisees, these scribes, these These religious leaders understand that regardless of how they answer this question, they risk losing their power. They risk losing that which they held so dearly. This reality and the response then doesn't just reveal the ability of Jesus to outsmart these religious leaders. It again reveals that idol that's in their hearts. For what's incredible as you read through these words is that it's very clear that these religious leaders could not care less about the real identity of Jesus. That was not their concern whatsoever. They cared not for the truth as revealed in scripture. They cared not for the truth regarding their future. They cared only about themselves. As such, their dream, their desires is revealed to be petty, pathetic, childish, Not only that, but their hearts are revealed to be cowardly. For as the text continues on, we read their answer in verse 32. Yeah, in 31, 32, we can read, they begin reasoning amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? For they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And this is one question that every religious leader in Israel should have had a pretty easy time answering, wasn't it? For again, as as we mentioned before, John the Baptist spoke like a prophet, he dressed like a prophet, he quoted the prophets. Of John the Baptist, Jesus says, no greater man has ever been born. Of John the Baptist, the the masses proclaim and and speak great things of him. John the Baptist was a man that that fit the, the exact picture, the prototype of what a prophet was supposed to do and say. 
The religious leaders then, therefore, should have had no trouble pointing him out as a prophet and hearing the truth of his words. And yet here in this text, they claim, well, we don't know. That by revealing, they don't care, revealing that they have no true authority within them. Their authority turns out to be hollow. It's pointless. They are revealed not to be these great, competent men able to lead, but rather they are revealed to be hollow and cowardly, unable to answer even the simplest of questions. This was a terrifying process for them, and no doubt incredibly humiliating, but again, they are not alone in this experience. For every single person, when dealing with Christ, comes to this point in time in which in which their hearts are exposed, in which they're revealed not to be these great competent people, but, but hollow, cowardly, childish. We see this earlier in the ministry of Jesus Christ in his interactions with the rich young ruler. This individual is able to come to Jesus and, and claim, I followed all the laws perfectly. I am a basically good person, Jesus. But the moment Jesus touches on his materialism and says, okay, well, you have to give up everything you own, then you can follow him. The moment Jesus touches on that one idol, the the ruler is proved to be hollow. His desires for the kingdom proved to be fake, vanity, a passing desire, and so he leaves humiliated. He leaves unable to enter into the kingdom. Time and time again, Jesus does this in response to individuals. When he tells an individual that, that he is to let the dead bury their own dead instead of waiting around. It is seen anytime Jesus calls any of his disciples where he demands that they leave everything in that moment and follow after him. In so doing, he is testing the level of devotion. He's testing where their heart truly stands before him. And as individuals today, that same test remains just as clear and just as challenging. For if we are to truly follow Jesus, if we're truly to call ourselves disciples, we, true, we too must be willing to, to give up any sense of, of personal autonomy. We too must be willing to, to call ourselves slaves of Christ. Followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, giving up absolutely everything for his name. If we're unable to do that, we're unable and unworthy to be called his disciples. In the case of these religious leaders, of course, they were entirely unwilling. And as such, not only were they shown to be unable to enter into the kingdom, they were shown to be unable to even lead the people in Israel. They were exposed as sinful creatures. As the text finishes then, as Jesus silences them, we come to this conclusion in which having exposed these religious leaders, Jesus, yet again as he does time and time again, demonstrates and and shows his ultimate superiority over these leaders. Reading it again in verse 33, we read, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In this text, both in what Jesus says and even more importantly what he does not say, he demonstrates this absolute authority, this absolute supremacy over these figures. And in so doing, we see him doing that which he has done time and time again. For throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' authority has been unquestionable. Time and time again, Jesus has shown that there is no power that can possibly throw him off course, that can challenge his wisdom, that can challenge his power. We saw that from the very beginning in the way that Jesus preached. 
And in response to that preaching, people were stunned, and they said, no one's taught like this before. No one's preached like this before. We saw his authority in terms of the way he, he cast demons out of figures, and again, he was able to do so with, with a simple spoken word. And again, in response to that authority, not only do the demons uh, s- uh, submit, the people are left stunned, saying, who is this man who can do this? We've seen the authority in response to natural disasters, in response to storms, in response to disease, in response to death. In all of these interactions, Jesus, time and time again, shows himself to be that which he claimed to be, the king of all creation. He demonstrates time and time again that it is utterly foolish to push back against his authority, to press against his reign, for there is no resistance. And again, that supremacy is demonstrated in the way he answers and what he refuses to say. Immediately, the moment he answers his the the moment he opens his mouth here in eleven, verse twenty nine and thirty, we see the superiority in his spoken word. For in response to their authoritative question, Jesus simply says, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, then, then I'll give you your answer. Jesus immediately puts them in their place. Jesus immediately shows these are not fellow rabbis speaking about authority. Jesus is the teacher, and these are disrespectful, disobedient children in the classroom. And Jesus is demonstrating that very quickly. They have no place to even question him. And so Jesus demonstrates this superiority in this question he asks and in his statement at the end in which he says, answer me. You answer this question and then I'll answer yours. So, so go ahead, give me my answer. There is this shocking level of superiority in his spoken word. But even more importantly, there's this shocking level of superiority in what Jesus doesn't say. For again, in the answer that he refuses to give, Jesus is demonstrating his ability to, to control the situation. We understand that the answer to their question is quite clear. There is no questioning where the authority of Jesus Christ comes from. There's been no question of that from the beginning. The authority of Jesus Christ comes directly from God the Father. The authority of Jesus Christ stems from the fact that he's not just a prophet. He's not just some scribe or elder. He's the son of God. This was seen from the very beginning in his baptism, in his preaching, in his miracles. It is seen time and time and time again. The point is that there's, there's no mystery to this. The Pharisees aren't genuinely, legitimately confused. They're blind. The reality of Jesus' reign has been abundantly clear from the beginning. It's just a matter of the fact that these religious leaders, like so many, refuse to acknowledge it. And so as the text continues on, we see Jesus silence the crowd. We see Jesus continue to control the situation. We see Jesus continue to move forward exactly as he had planned. And all these things then, we are reminded yet again of that theme that we've, we've read and we've considered throughout the Gospel of Mark. It is that theme of which Mark opens up his, his book in which he says, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the very beginning, Mark made it clear that the point of Jesus Christ's ministry was to be the promised Messiah. The point of his ministry was to demonstrate his authority, was to demonstrate that he alone came to save. As we consider these words of Mark 11, then we come back to that same conclusion and realize that in Jesus Christ, 
we are not simply seeing another religious figure. We're not simply seeing another religious teacher. In Jesus Christ, we see the king of all creation who came to inaugurate his kingdom. In Jesus Christ, we see the one whose authority doesn't simply threaten the authority of religious leaders, nor does it simply threaten the authority of those wicked individuals outside of us that we view as fallen, that we view as incompetent. Jesus' authority invades and claims absolutely everything. The question we must ask then is not the question of the Pharisees, by what authority does Jesus do these things? The question is, how are you and I responding to this authority? Are we individuals that will be crushed in the wake of this authority? Or are we those that will be propped up under that authority, that will be saved, that will be rescued? This is the greatest question. And so as we close this morning, as we consider all these things, there's, there's a number of things we, things we can say, but, but namely, if, if you're an unbeliever, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you must understand that, that you stand opposed to the king of all creation. We say this time and time again, but, but it cannot be stressed enough. Your resistance is utterly foolish. Your attempt to outwit, outsmart, outmaneuver the Son of God is childish. And you will eventually be exposed for what you are. A disobedient, childish rebel who will be judged. And so the calling to you is the same calling we give every week. It is, it is to bow before him. To repent of your sins. To believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. It is to submit before the perfect and all-powerful king of all creation. That is the one point of application weekly. And I pray that you do this soon before it is too late and before you face his wrath. For my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, there is an appropriate response of, of fearing this authority. That is to say, when we read these words of Jesus, when we see his authority on display, we rightly tremble in our place initially. We rightly cower before him when standing on our own. We rightly worship him as the king. But of course, as believers, that is not the end point of application. For as terrifying as Christ's authority is for the unbeliever, it is equally comforting for those of us who are in Christ. For we understand that Christ stands for us. Christ protects us. Christ keeps us in the faith. And so as terrifying as that authority initially is, let us be comforted for he watches over us. For Jesus Christ cares for us. And in response to that reality, let us then be careful to live out our calling that has been given, that has been handed down to us by this all, uh, by this authoritative ruler. That calling is given by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. There we read, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As believers, we understand that, that under the authority of Jesus Christ, we've been given a very specific calling, and that calling is to speak of Christ's authority to the surrounding creation. It is to make disciples. As believers, we understand that this calling is intimidating at times. This world can be a scary place, but... But in light of the fact that we live under the perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful king of all creation, we ought not to fear. 
though the world might lash out against us, though unbelievers might speak harshly towards us and might reject that, which, that, that message that we've been given, we ultimately understand that none of that matters. For we serve the king of all creation. We serve the one that has the highest level of authority. And so let us be good children. Let us be obedient servants. Let us joyfully, daily go out and preach this message of Jesus Christ, understanding that it is only in submission to his rule that true life can be found. And let us greatly look forward to the day in which we might see that authority in person when we might live in his heavenly kingdom. That being said, let us close in prayer and ask for God's guidance as we move forward. Father in heaven, as always, we thank you for today. As always, we are humbled by your word. God, I confess in my own heart it is easy to, to live life in a cowardly manner. It is easy to become fearful in this world. It is easy to become afraid of people who speak out against us. It is easy to look confident on the outside but be absolutely terrified on the inside, God. But we thank you for the fact that we serve a king that is not hollow in his authority. We do not see her of a king who is cowardly in his approach. We serve the almighty king of all creation, Jesus Christ. It is by his almighty hand that we've been saved and it is all by his almighty hand that we will be preserved, God. And so for my brothers and sisters in Christ, as always, I pray that we might daily seek to obey you. We might daily recognize the authority that you have over us and we might respond by giving every inch of our lives over to you, God. Might we not hold tightly onto any of the idols of our hearts, God, but might we freely give everything over to you, recognizing that you demand everything. Might we do this with joy, knowing that not only are you all-powerful, but you are also good to us, God. You are also gracious. For those who are in here this morning who do not know you, God, I pray they might rightly tremble before your authority. Might they rightly understand their position. Might they rightly understand and hear the words of Psalm 2 that remind us that you, God, have placed your king on Mount Zion. And that while the nations rail against him, while they make grand claims against him, that you, God in heaven, scoff, you laugh, for you understand that there's no way to overthrow your power, God. And so might they respond wisely. Might they bow their knee before you. Might they see that in you there is love, in you there is grace. But apart from faith, there is only judgment. Save them today, Lord. Give us wisdom in how we might best fulfill our mission as we go out from this place today. Might we do it with joy, might we do it with grace, Lord, and might we do it with an ever-increasing focus on the, that coming day in which Jesus will come again and save us, God. Jesus, we pray that day might come soon. For now, bless us with the ability to obey, God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.